Welcome to Classical Chops Studio from classicalchops.org. I'm Brett Banducci, and in this podcast, we will explore the dynamic and far-from-dead ethos of the world of classical music. For more than a decade, Classical Chops has developed innovative and engaging educational arts initiatives aimed at connecting and inspiring a diverse and multi-generational audience of classical music enthusiasts. Whether you are a fan of classical music, a young student, or a thriving professional, Classical Chops has something for you. We believe that the power of music transcends boundaries and is a universal language that connects us all. In this podcast, we will talk with a diverse array of cutting-edge musicians and explore the deeper mysteries and meaning of classical music. Born in Vermont in 1981 and raised in Providence, Rhode Island, composer, arranger, and keyboardist Nico Muley currently makes his home in Manhattan. One of the most genre-defined artists on the scene today, he has collaborated with such diverse artists as Bjork, Sufjan Stevens, Bryce Desner, and Grizzly Bear. Currently working on his second commission for the Metropolitan Opera, I sat down with Nico in downtown Los Angeles just moments after the first rehearsal of his new organ concerto, Register. Welcome, Nico, to Classical Chop Studio. Thanks for having me. And let's just jump right in there. You just came from a rehearsal of your organ, new organ work. I took an Uber right to, right <laughs> you to here. Literally took an Uber um, with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So, just tell me, how did the rehearsal go? It went great. Um, it you know, first rehearsals can go kind of one of two ways, mm-hmm. and you have to sort of set reasonable goals for yourself. So, my my goal for first rehearsal is is the piece okay. <laughs> right. And then, you know, and, and things can go wrong and things can be weird, but that's that's my main my main purpose in being there. And thing and the piece is okay. And the piece is and okay. That's great. And there's, you know, as as always with a with a concerto, there are like balance issues to work out, but I think I figured out how to write music at this point with orchestra, so it's like, you know, it's minor it's minor details. Um so it was great. And yesterday when we met um with the soloist and and um Maestro Conlon, we we all agreed that it would be fine if it was a disaster, um, which I think is great. If you set low expectations, and then it was, you know, it, it also, you know, one one forgets. I mean, the, the Phil is such a good band, and they just figured it out. And and you know, the, for first reading, what was great about it is that even if it was or wasn't a first reading, like the people who needed to practice had really practiced. Like clearly, the piccolo. There's two piccolos in it, and clearly they had like shed their parts. Now that piccolo section is unbelievable. Yeah, they're randomly really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. So have you had, tell me about times where it was a disaster. Um, and what did you learn? Well, I mean, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, the, the way things can be a disaster is if you realize that the pacing just doesn't, doesn't make sense. And no matter how many times you play it through in Sibelius, that, that, you know, in real life, it just doesn't kind of hold together. Right. Um, I've never, I've never had a, have a, had a real nightmare orchestra rehearsal. I definitely had an orchestra rehearsal with a mistransposed bass clarinet part, which was so sad, <laughs> you know. And and this is and that's one of those things where you know you, you just feel so stupid when the player raises raises her hand and says, "Excuse me." Right. So you're <laughs> literally sitting there waiting to see if a hand goes up. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that that's also a first rehearsal nightmare. I mean, you know this. It's right. it's oh. um, it's uh, it's completely terrifying. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm happy. I'm well, relieved. Let me ask you this then. Um, what about the kind of nonverbal? cues you get from the orchestra are you sensitive to that I've, I've learned not to be you've learned not to be okay i've learned not to be and in fact actually part of part of what helped me calm down about that was watching um actually my, my friend nadia uh when she's when she's reading through something you know it's not all smiles and you know of course when you're composers or may, maybe not everyone's like this in fact i'm pretty sure most aren't like this but i really just need to be loved you know? <laughs> and I, I want the people who are playing the piece to have a good time that's really important to right. me. right at least initially yeah Exactly. Um, 
but yeah, so I'm not I'm not too freaked out if I see some sour sour faces, you know, because also it's like it's scary to play in an orchestra. You have to put all these things together. You're, you're aware of not just your part, but your stand partner and, and of, you know, the whole ecosystem. And I again, because I've been around the block a few times, I, I don't feel the need. I, 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 try, I try not to I try not to um, let let a first rehearsal shake me. But in this case, right. it was really good. So I'm happy. Now, do you ever just check in with any of the orchestra players? I do. And I try actually to. I tried to sort of as quickly as I can before they start to sort of introduce myself to individual ones. And right. in my case, it's always like the percussion keeps really busy. So it's good to know if they have any questions or any like suggestions for the part. Um, and in this case, I, I definitely checked in with the piccolo team. Very good. Um, just always to, like anyone disgruntled in the brass I've found needs to I be. I don't even go over there. Uh, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't oh, even go over yeah. there. I, I <laughs> Real talk, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I like you could I mean I've I've had some that's always that's always what it is like in 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 opera it's like the, I mean I just I just got got through through this opera in England and it's like the horn players were just not like I could turn on every charming version of thing that I could possibly do and, and like bake a meatloaf or whatever and it was just not going to happen so you just have to kind of you just have to, have to kind of let that let that be <laughs> Okay, so what I'd like to do is talk about the genesis of the work. Sure. Um, especially the title and how it informs the piece. I actually just watched the little trailer teaser that the Met put out about Marnie. Oh, cool. And you see something really interesting in there where you refer to kind of the psychological layers of Marnie as registers. Mm. And I thought, wait a minute. There you go, yeah. So does register have a conceptual well, register, function in this, in this work? In... in I, the, what I what I was thinking about is um, ways in which we as human beings change registers or calibrate our our method of speech, our method of our our physical reality, our um, uh, you know syntax and grammar, and even just the pronunciation of certain vowels based based on what what's going on. You know, and, and certain people are really chameleons, and other people are the same no matter where they are, um, and. So I had that in the back of my mind, um, which of course is is very active in Marnie. But for this piece also, it's about the organ being the first synthesizer, and the organ being a, a mimic, right? And you, you, it is technically a wind instrument, but you create string sounds in some cases, percussive sounds, although not in this particular one. But um, or you can create, um, you know, brassy sounds, and it, it, so essentially, it's it's. It is an orchestration machine. Right. It is an orchestra. It's an orchestra, I mean, exactly. Way, one way you're writing a double orchestra work. Exactly, right? exactly. And, and also the idea that with, with an organ, because you have no control over the pressure of, of you know, the velocity of, of playing like a keyboard, uh, like other keyboard instruments, right. um, the way that you, the way that you change the mood, of course, and the way that you change the volume is by changing registers and you, and you registrate and you build a registration. I just, I actually just love the word. Right. Um, and all the connotations. And I think, you know, I, I always with titles try to, try to choose things that have multiple meanings and they're almost untranslatable out of, out of English. If that makes sense that, that you does have, make sense. you have this, you have these kind of multiple interpretations, um, of what that word, what that word means, and how they function. Yeah, exactly. And how they're informing the piece. And is it a noun? Is it a verb? Is it you know? It... Wonderful. I loved. Yeah. So we'll talk about Marnie more later because sure. I had some questions. And I can, I can go back to what what you were asking before, which is that the genesis of the piece was that you know I've written a lot for organ, um, and my friend Jamie, he's one of my oldest friends. We met when we were like twenty. This is James McVinnie. James McVinnie. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I um, listened to Cycles on the way. Right. Over. It's we, just wonderful. It's cool, right? I'm really oh, happy with that. Yes. Album. It's and this. Um, 
balance between the sacred and the profane. Mm. Right. Which seems to and be a theme in a lot of your work. It is indeed. And that that's another one of the registers that registers that, you know, I'm trying to access in this piece, which is that you have right, exactly that the organ is something that that comes out of obviously the, the the church. But now that there are these wonderful concert organs or organs in shopping malls or organs at the baseball stadium, um, you know, the the instrument itself speaks a bunch of different languages. Um and the 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 piece buried in the DNA of the piece is this piece by Orlando Gibbons, who of course wrote sec, um, secular and and sacred music. There's a little pavan back in there. Um, so d- so while while there isn't anything explicitly religious in the piece, it does reference a composer who's known for um, sacred music. Right, and this is in register. In not register, it, of course, yeah, exactly. Cycles. And then what about the organ? Is such a site specific instrument, which is basically not only playing itself but playing the architecture. Mm-hmm. How did you write for this specific instrument? Well, this is the challenge. And I think, you know, Jamie and I were talking about this last night because the organ is so frustrating because you can't really practice it unless you're practicing it on the actual on the instrument actual, yes. in the actual space. And, you know, every organ has a different a different feel, a different mechanism. Obviously, the stops are all different in every mm-hmm. organ. Yeah, it's just a huge challenge. Yeah. Um, God forbid you use the bells. Right, yeah, the God next forbid, yeah, organ exactly. you go to. You don't, don't have it. So what I try to do when I write organ music, but this is also true when I write really any music, but, but organ music specifically is provide just specific enough and just vague enough instructions for what I want that it's left to the player to figure out how the instrument at hand can be showcased. So it won't, I'll never say, like, I want this stop and that stuff. I'll say a complicated, bright sound. Or, you know, a, a, a weighty sound with more fundament than overtones, or a sound that is only the overtones. It's always, you know, you you just have an eight foot stop that plays the note as it's written, and then you have like, a you know, two and a third foot stop that plays it an octave and change above, or four octaves and two octaves and change above. Um, and so the vagueness is important because I think you, when this piece goes elsewhere, which it will do um, in the next couple seasons, it'll be flexible enough that we won't be regretting or we won't say, you know, we won't say, oh, God, it was so much better when we had this one specific stop. Right, in this one specific yeah. instrument. And and also, I mean, the, the other thing to know is that modern concert organs tend to all be of a certain size. So I don't think it's the case that you would go into a concert hall that has an organ and find some, like, dinky little, you know, <laughs> chamber organ. Right, um, right. So it's nice to know that that's... That that's um, there. There is some standard. Yeah. But with something like Cycles, with the album the album Cycles, um, a lot of those pieces are played both um, in in churches and in concerts, and those are designed to be maximum flexibility. So th- there's a piece on that called um, Reverend Mustard, his installation prelude, that was played in an organ with like eight stops at its premiere, and now people do it. In, in, there, there are a lot of ways to do right. that piece, and right. that's kind of on purpose too. Well, I think this ties into the, to the conceptual nature of Register. It's basically affirming the way you're using register, correct? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Conceptual. Let's take a quick break. This episode of Classical Chops is sponsored by the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. Committed to making great music personal, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra has concerts for everyone. From Baroque music to full, lush orchestral concerts and contemporary music, see what's playing at laco.org. Enjoy 10% off your ticket order using the code CLASSICALCHOPS. 
So, yeah, well, we should talk a little bit more about the piece and actually how it's put together. Mm-hmm. Now, is it a concerto? It's a concerto, yeah. It's not an organ symphony. It's a concerto. It's a concerto. So tell me a little bit about, you know, notes and rhythm. Sure. And the integration of the organ. So the, the Orlando Gibbons piece, here are the building blocks. The Orlando Gibbons piece is um, his Pavan in G minor, and I took the first four bars and sort of froze it not on the downbeats, but on the, in the middle of the in the middle of the. So, for instance, it's not every quarter note; it's like the middle. Of, it's every other eighth note, and to see what the chord is there, because there are all these moving parts, you end up in these kind of funky, not right. quite major minor. Um, and because it's English music from that period, you do actually have major minor relations. So, I took that. I took that, and maybe it's like eleven chords or something. That's cycle number one. And that's or material number one. Um, and then I wrote a gigantic kind of chicane thing um, that works both uh, in its bass register alone, in its treble register alone, and combined. So those are kind of two and a half big cyclical pieces of, of um, harmony. And basically... At the beginning, it's all shuffled around, so you're you're switching registers really, really quickly from one idea to the other, and then sometimes you you you're playing one set of material that you've only heard with a different kind of you know pianissimo all of a sudden becomes fortissimo, and it it should feel kind of stroby like you're moving in between spaces really, really quickly. And is this bouncing back and forth between between organ and orchestra? Yeah, and and the way that I'm using the woodwind section mainly is as the organ functions where, again, you have a note, and then you couple the notes. You add an octave below, below, an octave above, two octaves above, and these mixtures and and strange kind of mutations. Um, So that happens, and the organ and the woodwinds are sort of twinned, and Mm -hmm. they can play in unison or in canon. Um, You're organizing the orchestra. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, The whole first section, after a little introduction, is just a kind of toccata. Like, it just goes. It's just 16th notes. And... Any ch- there, the rule is that there are almost no transitions. It, it's just hard cuts, um, so sudden shifts in in register, and that and so then, then basically the whole thing just gets louder and louder and louder, um, and more and more intense, and the rhythms kind of compress, compress, compress until there's a cadenza for just the pedals alone, basically, because that's just fun. Because you write an organ piece, whatever. Nice to see, nice to see little feet going, um, and then at the end, everything kind of dissolves, and all the chords simplify, and then we start hearing the gibbons in its real state. So seen, seen not through a kind of, a kind of mesh, but, and then I just present sort of, it, it all melts away. And then you get that, you get that Gibbons at the end. That um, sounds stunning. In the harp and Celeste, right? Because uh, gay. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the gay signifier. Yeah, exactly. Just in case there was any doubt. <laughs> any doubt. So I guess we should talk a little bit about, um, your collaborative engagement, especially with bedroom community. And we did a little bit with James McVinney. So can you tell me a little bit about the Bedroom Community Collective? Sure. Um, Bedroom Community sort of started, God, 11 years ago, um, based in a recording studio that my friend Valgir has in suburban Reykjavik. And the basically, he and I were both making music, as was the composer Ben Frost um, and the American folk singer um, Sam Eminem. We were all making music that was sort of not, it wouldn't fit exactly in a traditional label system. Um, and we were making, we were working all with one another. So we were all in each other's projects and process. So it just made sense to find, and, you know, Valgier's sort of brilliance was, you know, we all work here. Why don't we just make something that, that showcases the work that we do in this studio and, and, and the minds of the people moving through, moving through that space. So in a sense that, that was, um, sort of homeless music. It gave it, gave it a home. Um, but I should say about Jamie, about James McVinney is that, 
the album that I made for him, which is also the Cycles, which is on Bedroom Community, is also a bit of a of a homeless um, project because it's like you know these seven these seven um, meditations on Advent, which are sung with plain chant, meant for use in a kind of devotional context, with um, complete concert music, with things that can go either way, with a piece from Marimba. It's you know it would be it would be difficult, I think, to sort of to sort of pitch that to a label and be like, hey, who wants who wants this bizarre thing? Um, the organ inter- interjections and the antiphons were. They're fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually it's so so funny. You should say I'm right now, literally, like this afternoon. Once once we're done, I'm I'm writing a set of seven meditations for um, Lent in collaboration with the um, uh, chaplain of King's College, Cambridge, Andrew Hammond. So he's written these sort of page and a half long homilies for the different. Um, so you start with Ash Wednesday and you go through the different Sundays of, of Lent, and then there's a, an, an attendant organ piece for each one. Um, and we're premiering it in like a second, so I have to finish. <laughs> <laughs> That's very exciting. Um, okay, so what are the next projects that you have with well, uh, that. <laughs> with, with um, Bedroom Community? Um, you know, I'm desperate to make another album. I just have to do it. I've been, the, you know, it's it's tricky because I, I've been in I've been in Opera Land for so long, and that Opera Land is like parking a gigantic like rhinoceros in your living room. There's not much else that you can deal with. Um, but it's also funny you should say another artist on Pigeon Community Puzzle. Um, he's called he's a singer songwriter from the Isle of Wight. Just sent me a new track of his that he's recorded in Iceland. He wants me to add things to it. So there's always those things going on. Right. And yeah, so there's nothing immediately in the pipeline until until I until I'm done with Marnie, as in until it closes at the Met. I'm I'm not ready to think about anything else. So tell me, how is Marnie going? It's going well. Um, I have to tell you when I watched the um, when the trailer. Isabel Leonard, she's gorgeous. Isabel Leonard is so gorgeous, it's insane. It's actually kind of maddening. Yeah, it's almost like she it's shouldn't like, even be up. on the opera I know. stage. I know, it's really, it makes me crazy. Um, yeah, Marnie's going really well. We had we had an amazing time in London. Sasha Cook just nailed it so hard. She's a, she's a real fierce musician. Um, I, it was great. Um, I, the, you know, the piece is tricky because you have this, this one woman's kind of navigating... Um, this world of sort of antagonistic men and figuring out different ways to lie and different ways to exist and different ways to be sort of entrapped by, uh, she's not figuring out how to be entrapped, but she is entrapped in various ways. It's sort of psychological and, and, and physical and in one kind of scary, even, in, even in her dreams. Yes, exactly. Does exactly. she have a phobia of red in your, production? no, we didn't do that. No, we would, we adapted the, we adapted the book. I mean, I think, you know, one of the interesting things that, that I, I keep on saying is that, with many of Hitchcock Hitchcock's adaptations, in a lot of cases, his interest is, well, as it should be visual, but also I think it's about the way that he thinks about women, and specifically about Tippi Hedren. Um, and it was amazing, while I was writing the piece, she gave that interview where she said that, you know, he basically... But what was fascinating about that interview, and this is, you know, this is a year and a half before now what we're kind of in this Me Too right. moment, but what she said was so... And I, I actually would love to find the original, like a transcript of the interview, because I'm not sure if this is actually the order in which she said things or if there's anything in between. But she said, he sexually harassed me in, in his office, he, you know, groped me and kind of pinned me against the wall. And he always had the best scripts and was the most brilliant director. But it was in the same paragraph, this idea of, you know, sexual assault, but also coexisting with, you know, so brilliant, so brilliant. 
Um, and that's something that we're all dealing with right now is that, is that question of like, how do you separate the, how do you separate the, the, um, you know, allegations and, and the reality of, of, um, sexual impropriety with, you know, people who make and interpret art. It's really complicated. Anyway, but so we, but the, the way that we dealt with the film was by, we, like I watched it and said, good night, right? <laughs> Watch it once. And then I, I watched it with like the, my tallest, tallest friend and was like, good <laughs> we're done. So, um, and then, uh, then Nicholas Wright, who, who made the adaptation is brilliant, brilliant playwright and, and librettist, um, really delved into the book. And then of course with the book, you have to, you have to simplify it so much into, into a libretto. So we, we, um, yeah, he 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 did a lot of kind of rhetorical um, jujitsu to make it <laughs> to make it line up to make it work. Um, well, tell me a little bit about opera in general in two thousand eighteen. Hmm. Opera is it's amazing. It's it's every time I'm every time I work on it, either if you're just in a room alone with a singer, or in a zitz proba or on the stage or whatever. It, I, I I cannot believe that we do this. I cannot believe this is a thing that exists and that people are paying for it and that people go to it on purpose. I mean, it's, it's bonkers. Do you feel the function of opera is changing even at somewhere like the Metropolitan Opera? Well, I've never quite known what the function was meant to be. I mean, of course it's meant to be... I guess more, I mean, maybe some of the conventions. Mm. Well, you know... Definitely the subject matter. Right. It's difficult to pin, to pin down any trends specifically. I, I think because opera is such a slow-moving ship, and I think you find that the that the faster vessels, which are you know chamber opera opera companies, things like Prototype in New York, um, and you know, I feel like in in many cities you can't open a door without some like awesome four-person opera happening somewhere somewhere strange, you know. Oh, this neighborhood? Yeah, no, exactly. I'm yeah. sure this is happening down the street. Literally. In, and and for me, I I think I'm kind of the wrong person to ask because I had the strangeness of my first opera being literally for the Met. So, you know what I mean? There's a, there's an odd... And then the second one I wrote was for Gotham, chamber opera, but I already had this kind of grand thing ha- happen. I, I do have one proclamation about opera, which is that one thing that, that drives me crazy is the misunderstanding, both by my colleagues and, and by people who write about music, the idea that you have to choose one or the other, that you have to either be like a scrappy like ground up chamber opera company or a grand opera company. And, and, and that for that in, in some way they're in competition. Right. And it's like, these are very, very different members of the same ecosystem. You know, you learn so much about writing chamber opera by writing grand opera and you learn, it's the same, it's like orchestra and chamber music. And, and it makes me uncomfortable sometimes when I, when I do interviews about it, because the, the implication is that, that you know, grand opera is dying, and that that we should like dance on its grave, which I think is I think is not right. And I think grand is you know, it's it's a whole different animal. And I I wish that everyone that all composers did it once because it's so hard. It's I mean it's it's just insane. The the closest I can think of to the first day that you have everyone on stage in costume, stage hands, you know, flying around the lights and the projection. And to be the quote-unquote author of that thing feels like a dream. Like, it feels like a surreal kind of giving a speech in front of your school in your panties only, combined with I can fly, <laughs> combined with the the panic attack of about to jump, you know, fall out of an airplane. It's, it's a it's an emotion that I think you need to have experienced that to describe it. Describe this. It's, it's, right. really, it's really something else. Well, one way you, I think you kind of transcended or evolved um, convention and opera is having four Marnies. 
Oh well, yeah. I mean, this kind of yeah. does away with the diva, right? Right. It's like who's well. I mean, we have, we have we have four shadow Marnies. shadow Marnies. So, so Marnie know. herself sings the whole time, and then right. we have these shadow these shadow women who sing in an early music style, so straight tone, and they surround her and they represent a combination of things. They represent her past personas, like people that who she's been in the past. They represent her what they call like a tra- a trauma a trauma split a split personality from from a childhood trauma they represent her anxiety but they also are a source of comfort and they represent her deceit and but also her her strange straightforwardness so that was a that was something that we all came up with very very early on and it helped me too because it it means that you have a smaller group of people who can function abstractly and you don't have to wait for the chorus to do that and one of the things that i learned in in two boys which uses the chorus in 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 a purely abstract way they they almost never represent real people it's just people online is that the physical task of getting a chorus on stage in such a position that they can be heard is crazy and it you know and that's that's the thing when you lose a whole day of rehearsal because it's like and then when it doesn't work well right then i mean then what exactly so with with the marnettes as we call them you (laughs) you have the advantage of abstract characters who are much um, more nimble than you know 60 people but i should also say i mean one of the one of the things that's so crazy about marnie is that there's this fox hunt in it as as in the movie and the minute, the literally, actually, the day that Michael Mayer, the director, called me and asked if didn't didn't I think this would be a fabulous opera? And I was like, Yeah, are you crazy? And this commission happened so fast. He was like, I think this would be great. He called up Peter Gelb's office. Peter was like, Totally. I mean, it happened like it, it took like forty five minutes. And you were writing the next day. Well, I was freaking out the next day. No, Nick started <laughs> writing, you know, sort of a couple months later. But the first thing I thought was, How in the hell are we going to do this fox hunt? Because that's so scary. And and what what do you? What do you, I mean, you obviously can't have one on stage, although they probably have a fox at the Met somewhere in the back. But, <laughs> <Poor> <laughs> you know I mean? along with like Gabri- Grane, Gabriel, the, horror, Gabriel yeah. the donkey or whatever. Um, literally Gabriel the donkey. The old one was called Sparkles, the new one is called Gabriel, <laughs> which is so fabulous. Um, and they, and what, what we unlocked in this fox hunt conversation was that she identifies with the fox, right? She identifies with the vixen, even though she's on her horse, whom she loves more than anything else in the world, she identifies with this, with the hunted. So that, to me, was another example of finding a way to welcome abstraction into what, by necessity, has to be a very, a very realistically told story. And how did the music react? Well, the music, it, you know, the, the first the first thing we dis- discussed is there will be no sound of horse hooves, no coconuts, no, you know, this is not... Castanets. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so the music sounds like a, a kind of... it's It wants to sound like what it sounds like if you're a fox and you hear distant thunder. So there's a lot of drum stuff kind of offstage. There's... The, it's a lot of... Um, rustling orchestration rather than, you know, galloping. Now, is the, or, uh, the orchestra functioning a la Richard Strauss? Is the, the orchestra, emotional... I, I did something I did something I've never done before, um, which is that I gave each character um, a double in the pit. So she is an oboe, and he is a trombone, and the wicked brother is a muted trumpet, and the mother is a the mother-in-law is a piccolo. And, and what, <clears throat> what that, again, allowed me to do was in a, in a story where everyone is lying... You can the instrument in the pit can know the truth, so the instrument can double the voice, or the instrument can answer the voice, and then also when you have these scenes where no one's saying anything but they're kind of sussing each other out, you can have these little instrumental trios that become the voice that become the voices and 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 that suggest action on stage. Um, <clears throat> so that that was sort of a you know it's a little bit turn of the screw, um, but you know all I do is steal from Britain 
<laughs> every five Don't minutes so whatever um and now what about the process of working with the librettist mm. so so uh, we we had a i've been very lucky i've had th- i've worked with three really wonderful librettists with Stephen Karam, uh craig lucas and and nicholas wright um and st- basically i can tell really quickly if is if a piece of text is settable um i i, I kind of how I do you test that out? I, I can just, you can just see. It, it's one of those things where it, it's like you just look at it and you, you think, for, so the, the criteria are no line can be, should be complicated enough so that by the time in, sing, in singing time, in, in opera time, by the time you get to the end of the line, you can't remember what the beginning of the line was. So it can't, it, it can't be grammatically crab-wise. It has to be very clear what is being said. To me, this is and all of this. Is, this is not like how I think it should be done. This is just how how I function. And of course, anyway. So there's that. Um, the there the vowels have to make sense. You can't have you can't have sort of cumbersome um, words that won't re- that won't read. Uh, and the packages of text, like the dialogue, for me needs to be settable in a realistic kind of speech rhythm way so that's the I, I can tell that really really quickly so you were delivered the entire libretto we was did it, we did bits, it, we okay. did bits but i mean i think it was one of those things where where we nick writes incredibly quickly i write incredibly qu- quickly and react incredibly quickly so we you know it didn't take that long to get it right um what took a long time was to was i mean the scariest thing about about that is it's not like the rule in scripts where it's like it's a minute per page or whatever it's it's a completely different how do you time it? Well, you get it wrong. I mean, <laughs> and just start cutting. You, yeah, you get it wrong and start cutting, or you you have to figure out once. So once you have the libretto, you map out the act and figure out how long each thing should be in terms of just the dramatic pacing that you, the composer, think that you know about, which of course you don't. <laughs> and you know, you you figure out where the what the roller coaster is, both um, character by character just in terms of, like, the volume of the orchestra. You know what I mean? Like, li- literally, where's the loudest point? Where, if you if you believe in it, where's the emotional climax? What are we achieving in each scene? And those things start to present, start to present lengths. But, you know, in a lot of cases, if you get a long piece of text for something, the instinct for me is either, you know, it's going to be really long or you're going to have to go really fast through it. So a lot of cutting happens right. in that regard. Um Cutting and increasing the tempo. <laughs> yeah, or, but you, that, so that's where, that's where you start getting it wrong. Um, but eventually, for me, what what I start doing is, but I also I, the, the one, I, I firmly firmly believe that each act of an opera shouldn't be much longer than an hour because I, I have to pee, <laughs> like for real. Yeah, totally. I mean, I can barely I can barely make it through through Rheingold, which is you know I think I mean I think well, you that's, know, yeah that's like an if hour you, and forty minutes. If you assume that that Zalame is the perfect length, right? Do and I, I mean? do. Don't, don't you think? <laughs> yes. Um it's same, it's funny, it's like I always I always think that if your if your pop song is longer than Jolene, you have to cut like <laughs> you have to cut everything. <laughs> so it's you know what I mean? I, like these endless like radio hit things. I'm like, no 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 no, just Jolene. <laughs> <laughs> um so so yeah, the structure is impossible. You never get it right. Um and then you're just gonna have to hear it. Live. You have to hear it, yeah. I mean I think I've learned enough to to self edit. And then, you, then you get into the room, and you do it, do it more. Oh, we did the. I mean, yeah, you cut, you cut, you cut, you cut. I've never had to write more music in the middle of the process. I'm, I'm cutting a big thing right now, for the next edition, and then adding a little aria. But 
that was just for dramatic reasons and, and just for to balance the acts out. Do but, you get kind of psychic non-verbal information from the audience? Oh my god, it's the worst because but you know, you know when you're in a space and you feel it relax or you feel it get bored or you feel I'm hypersensitive oh. to that and you <laughs> actually don't know what's wrong with your piece. It, this applies to all music until you're there with other people on opening night and it's too late to change anything. <laughs> like the dress rehearsal, you know, and and of course on opening night you think like just just lord jesus take the wheel <laughs> you know it's like just get me out of here cuz you you immediately see what's wrong with it it's like finally someone turns the the it's like that shaving mirror where you're like what is that on my face <laughs> the magnifying mirror i hate that <laughs> do any, that's what it feels like but over your whole body you're like i have that there i have those pores <laughs> yeah exactly but in a sense this is kind of a important component of this whole process what the, having that oh yeah organic mm-hmm kind of collective behind you. It is. And I think, you know, part also what I, what I learned is that it's good to invite people in the process who don't know much about opera um, or who don't know much about music even. To just give it to you straight. Yeah. And we did a sing-through and I brought a friend who was a psychiatrist and was like, tell me. You know, and I brought a friend who was a journalist and, you know, tell me. And because, you know, also, it's, it's so funny, but my, my assistant on the project is a composer also, and he was so, he was so not willing to tell me to cut everything. <laughs> and I'd be like, don't you think we should cut that? He's like, I like that music. I'm like, that's not what I asked. <laughs> Do you right, know what I mean? Right. I like it too. Well, this can backfire, right? Because there could be something that you know you don't want in there. And then right. th- I mean, I, these there, people say. There's some things I fight for. There, there were some things I fought for that I, you know, was right about. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I feel like with I feel like with collaborative processes, you should fight about three things only. Oh, I mean, over the course, it doesn't matter what they Just are. Pick that, yeah, three, pick, you're yeah, right. pick, pick your battles. Right. Um, I, I learned that the hard way. Trying, you know, it's just like some things just don't matter. And I think, you know, honestly, and this this is sort of sacrilegious, but like I don't know of any opera besides Zalame that is the perfect length. In, in, and part of that is the function of productions as well. But even something like... Votesec doesn't bother me. Votesec is perfect. Yeah, Votesec is perfect. Zalame is perfect. Let me think. I mean, you know, there's like there's like a small handful of things. Yes, I've never been born. Thank you for reminding me. Turn of the Screw, I think, is exactly right. Um, Billy Budd is not exactly right. Peter Grimes is not exactly right. Even though every moment of Peter Grimes is so delicious you want to kill yourself, it's like... You know, sometimes you're like, Are we, is this still happening? You know, <laughs> or like, why was that so fast or, or whatever? You know, nothing about Gerda Dammering is right. But again, it's like, it's, <laughs> but it's so delicious. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? And you're like, who are these people? There's a chorus in this? Like, it's just, <laughs> it's like who are those people? It's so <laughs> random. Um, and then, you know, from the canon, it's like, you know, Tosca is arguably okay. And I'm not saying that, n- n- not speaking in any way musically. I'm just talking about that feeling of, pace and i'm not i'm not it's not like gener you know young generations don't have patience because i will sit through einstein on the beach like four times in a day you know um and i will sit through valkyrie with valkyrie's kind of perfect too anyway we're now we're finding more but you know what so i'm saying you ha- over the years have you collected kind of a catalog of operatic moments that are like yes remember this scene yeah. <laughs> remember this and a lot scene. of it you know a lot of it's production based too like in in you know, for me, for me, the production, I've seen a lot of Pelias's, um, but the Robert Wilson production unlocked that, un- unlocked that opera for me in a way. When you realize that the, I mean, most of his, of Wilson's work is about showing the m- st- most stripped down way to communicate an emotional intensity. 
and and by stylizing every motion and every gesture, then you finally realize what Debussy's done in a much more poetic way. And I think there's a way to do that. There's a way to do that opera where it's like, you know, you set it in like a Laura Ashley store gone to seed. You know what I mean? And it's like... No. Help me get over. I just can't with the vocal writing in Pelley. Oh, I love it. It's so. I mean, it's always like pervasive, recitative. Yeah, kind of, I like it. You do, but but again, it's like again, the production has to has to kind of. You have to. I think you have to go hard for the style of that. I and, find myself screaming like someone sing, yeah, sing, yeah. sing <laughs> some sustain, right? Sustain something. For me, the moment in Pelias that's so beautiful is when she sings a cappella. The names of the saints is so great, and that that for me actually unlocks her. He's like, who are you talking to? <laughs> you know what I mean? And when she's apostrophizing something we don't see, ugh, it makes me so happy. But as you say, yeah, you collect you collect moments. I mean, for me, the the moment is in Peter Grimes and the Even Song scene where they're in church or yeah sorry there's a Sunday morning scene at church and and Ellen's out there looking at the boys bruises and they're singing the psalm it makes me insane like even thinking about it I might pee myself like it's so good (laughs) do you know what I mean but there are also moments like the first eight minutes of um, the death of Klinghoffer the first the Palestinian chorus is so fabulous you you know you have no idea what to do with yourself Um, unless I've I've played it so you you know what to do with yourself (laughs) (laughs) I love when the strings go there's this metric modulations I still haven't recovered it's so great the, the I, most outrageous win parts. Outrageous, I mean, I, I, outrageous. I mean, yeah, that's such a funny. That's such a funny orchestrational opera because it's really small, and there's all the synthesizers, but everyone's right. like put to work. Oh, <laughs> put to <laughs> work. Put to. John work. doesn't give a shit. He's just. He's just like. He's like everybody dance now. Like it's like. So, and count. You know, it's I. The more I study John's orchestral music, I'm like, this is hard. Oh, pieces like naive and sentimental music. I wouldn't dare write any of that. I'm like, this is crazy. This cat, like the timpani part. I'm like, what is going on? It's so, well. Let me ask you this then: How does practicality feature into your own music? I, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, figure that out myself. I mean, I I'm I'm so obsessed with being idiomatic that sometimes I feel like I, I've let myself be a little bit restrained in terms of trying new things. I'm really not restrained to the viola because my best friend's a violist, and that's fine. Like. I love that viola concerto. It's good, right? But it's oh. like that—that that was a collaborative thing over ten years of us knowing each other, and you know. Well, maybe this is part of the answer: is that writing works for? I mean, this is basically what's happened forever: is writing works for specific performers and their specific technique, right? Correct. And then, and the thing is, if you're, you know, if you've tailor made the thing well, it'll work on anyone. Once, once it's, you know, it's like a beautiful suit. It's like you you make it on the body, but then you learn how to. Or it adds that dimension that right. attracts players. Exactly. I mean, as a violist, you come to Hindemith, and right. you're just thinking, oh. And Schwaninger, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like, crunch, crunch, crunch. And, but something, in, something you want to connect to this. You want to, you want to conquer it. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, Hindemith is it? <laughs> how many violist sonatas did he write? Three? Oh, gosh. It's like... It's like seven. Is it seven? I mean, there's some, yeah, solos. I just remember, I, I, when I was in high school, I accompanied... Allstate students. I guess it was the second one that I was really good at. Or is there's one that I, you know, that I knew yeah, well. Was, yeah. Girl, spending a weekend playing that sonata like over and over and over again with different violists was a learning experience. Oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, I bet. I um, bet. With like teen viola from like, you know, Woonsocket, Rhode Island. <laughs> well, you know, this is what's so wonderful about you expanding the repertoire. That's what, you know, that, that's, 
it's funny that there aren't more viola concertos. It makes me a little crazy. It does. Yeah, it makes the me Walton, crazy I mean, as the well. Walton's delicious. I mean, you know, there's... We have three. Yeah. And then you have to hear these for the rest of your life. Stomets. Stomets, yeah. But when it comes to the big competitions, you have the Walton, right. the Bartok, and yeah. the Der Schwanendreher. And Schwanendreher, yeah. It's, it's really funny. I wish, I mean, I wish Stomets were more... I mean, I like that. The Stomets, yeah, the Stomets will come up because of the, obviously because of the classical. But as you, you know, being idiomatic is... That's, it's always the balance. Like I, the piccolo parts in this, in this, in register are, they begin from an idiomatic place and then they leave that place. But I'm not mad. I'm not mad if people have to practice. It's not something that you, oh, can, absolutely. That, that you can expect in orchestral situations often though. And, and I've, I've just come to, I've come to learn that. But that's why when I studied John Adams's music, I'm like, wow, like this is, you have to practice. It's not just with a metronome, but you can't practice with a metronome because the tempo is like so supple. I, I, I still I still can't get my head around some some of those some of those recordings. I'm like, how did Esapeka like get that to happen? Right, you know? right. Oh, I'm <laughs> Which I think doing... I ask myself that every day. How did <clears throat> Esapeka get that to happen? <laughs> it's like it's the title of my autobiography. Um, when I was doing uh, played Nixon in China, oh my gosh! You know, you're practicing at home, everything's going great. Yeah, and then, then you, you get get the... there and just like this cold sweat. Yeah, that stuff is scary. The Met killed it. That was that was an awesome reading of that. I have I have some friends who play in a, in a let, let's not name it orchestra, but they are brutal to new music, right? They just don't like it, you know. And they they like me fine because we like go to the bar or whatever. But they, you know, they're they're not basically if the if the piece reads itself, plays itself, sounds awesome, and is seven and a half minutes long, they're like cool. Go. But the minute you get into like anything that you know, with one exception, which was Tom Addis. Um, and his music is hard, as you well know. Yes. Um, and it's hard, and it it requires deciphering because the notation is is encoded in such a way that you have to kind of you have to figure out what the hell it is that he means. So you're like, okay, this is scordatura, and you know he does those crazy things on the viola where it's where it's unisons that aren't open strings, like all over the place, and there's like a crazy like little crab wise tune, and you know what I mean? It's like, um, but my friends in unnamed orchestra. Um, his piece in seven days, which is like my favorite piece of music ever. Um, pi- it's a piano concerto. It's a piano concerto. With- All I do is steal it. That's it. Yeah, it's like, literally. I wake up this morning and like, thank you. Um, <laughs> that piece. They told me the story. They were they were like the orchestra library put up a sign that said the the parts of the Addis are here like months early and they're they're looking pretty gnarly. So you should all take a look at this. And somehow they a all did and b loved practicing it because it it was rewarding in that way where you start like like the Hindemith where it's like you start well it, different than the Hindemith because you start and it and it's awful and then it ends and it's awesome. Whereas you, with the Hindemith you start and it's awful and then it ends and it's fine. I get it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Although I was at that concert of this unnamed orchestra, and they could have had a couple violins. You can always could use, have had. A you can always more. use. A, you can always use a couple more. <laughs> but it, but the fact that the, the fact that they they enjoyed themselves right. was to me the the trick. I mean, again, you well, know, the it's, piece came across. That's that's the that's the thing I always want is for people to look at my parts and be like, I am willing to meet him halfway with this material. And I found you know this is and this is going to sound crazy about idiomaticans, but I found that. I've had a lot of bad, if I've had bad experiences, it's always with my simpler music because it looks easy on the page and therefore doesn't feel like it requires like shedding. Right, the attention that it does. Um, and I, I, I find this I find this to be true when I play other people's music where like the, I, there's a Philip Glass A2, the slow one that I play, and it's slow. It's like quarter note equals 60 and you're like, okay, whatever. It's just like, it's, you know, it is hard because he makes you, he you have to, do, you have to figure it out in a really 
physical and technical way. But when you look at it, it's just like eighth notes and quarter notes, and it doesn't seem like right. You know, and I, I feel like a lot of my music, especially from like five or six years ago, looks that way, and therefore, you know, no, you, you just don't practice it um, until the night before. Then you yeah. Run. Big trouble. And then you're in big trouble because you're like, oh, wait, I have to like get into like 19th position from like, you know, it's like. <laughs> At classicalchops.org, we share our vision through artist interviews, our Facebook community, our YouTube channel, and original free interactive learning activities for both classroom and family use. Our dynamic free educational modules teach kids about opera, chamber music, and the symphony orchestra. Materials can be downloaded and explored from our website, classicalchops.org. I kind of want to go into some creative value. Ooh. Talk about creative values. And um, I wrote here, the linear evolution of artistic creations. What the hell is that mean? I know, right? I've been thinking about this lately, about the connective thread. And you were talking about this with the, with the organ piece, mm. the gibbons being this connective thread, that losers... Are we still having conversations with the past? Well, I, I, I certainly am. I, mean, I know but, you are. I, I, but, you know... I, and is it okay not to? I'm noticing the younger generation has kind of snipped that. Mm. Where... Uh, I'm trying to think... Well, I'm trying to think now, now think of a composer... Can you th- what, what like are you what are you thinking of specifically? We don't have to we don't have to name names, but oh, I'm thinking more of the kids. Yeah, and which kid, like, like no, just like students of mine. I see trends I'm seeing. Yeah. with the younger crowd that's writing music that where I listen to it and I don't hear the connection to anything. You and you, when you say the past, you mean like even even like Strauss or even right? Or I'm thinking of like convention. Mm-hmm. Like obviously your your works, you have very specific compositional challenges and mm. it's obvious what you're taking on well i think right. obvious is someone that's going to listen Can, yeah right and then i find works that it's it's just a it's just surface it's just a there is none of that right i see what you mean i know uh, you i'm know, not I, going about <clears throat> this right so i guess i'm talking about your own personal compositional values and your kind of personal i'll, I'll use the word agenda for yourself right. as commissions okay. come in you're thinking oh you know here i'm doing this right i think we may have talked about this last time we met which is that you know whenever i get a commission and it's always you know it's like whatever this is a good example 18 to 25 minutes organ and orchestra happening on this day you know whatever so you you get the restrictions and then for me the question is what do i write that will be preferable to the same amount of silence because I would be very, very happy to sit for 22 minutes and just think about something. You know what I mean? And that's actually most of my day is doing that. And so you think, you know, you're, when you're running a piece, you're asking for people to give you that amount of time and trust you with it. And something that you want to listen to. And something I want to listen to. Yeah, I have to, I have to drive pleasure from it and hope that. And then, again, it goes back to if the musicians are deriving pleasure from it, that'll radiate off of the stage. Right. Right. If, and I, th- I, I firmly believe that, that if, you, and I think you see this in opera as well, like if you see that the singers are having a great time, even if things fall apart, even if the coordination is bad, even if the production is bad, it'll still, it'll still ring true with, with opera. I've, I've almost always found this to be the case. In terms of a dialogue with the past, I find myself just sort of genetically always doing that just because of my background as a chorister and just because of how much sacred music I write. I'm thinking of some, I'm obsessed lately with a couple of works of Dutille, uh, Correspondences, mm-hmm. which is, of course, is about this, and Les Citations, which is a small chamber piece, which literally... is so good. So he has, obviously, a creative agenda, quote-unquote, to communicate with these, mm. with these ancient 
works or whatever. Right. And um, to kind of put his own, he's literally writing a letter. Right. To the. Yeah. I mean, I think. That's what I'm not seeing a lot of, I see in your work. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about how important is that to you? How conscious is that to you? Well, for me, it's incredibly important. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't prescribe to anyone else what to do with themselves. I mean, for me, a lot of pieces I always think as, like, love letters to dead composers. Um, I wrote this mass called Spiral Mass, which is actually about, like, going back in time. And it literally is a love letter to Stravinsky and the Stravinsky Mass and to William Byrd, the Mass in Four Voices. And and I I think about that um, all the time. Like, what are you, what are you referencing? What are you... Um, what was uh, your take? What's your take? But also, what you know, it's a way of acknowledging like ancestry in a sense. Plugging in, yeah, plugging in, and, right. and I think you know, <clears throat> interestingly, something that I've noticed. Now I'm going to sound like grandpa, but I so whenever I teach, it's like high school kids usually. There's a kind of a lot of the a lot of the reason there isn't a dialogue with the past because they just don't know anything. Um, and I think it's you know, I I had this boy. This made drove me so crazy. He turned up with so it's short, fast piece for piano. An etude, basically, where the right hand was like, it was very kind of snarly and chromatic, very fast, mechanical, you know, right hand is mainly white notes, left hand is mainly black notes, sort of Petrushka-y, whatever, but, you know, with this kind of unstable harmonic language. And it was good. And I and I said, you know, so I, I was like, well, what, you know, clearly this is, this is coming from the Ligeti etudes, and he was like, the what? <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And I was like, I was like, did you say... Did you just say what? And then, and then I was like, "Well, was like, why don't you go on ahead and and look at the look at them tonight, right?" And it was as if I had asked him to like, you know, bring me the heart of the of Snow White or something like. And and meanwhile, you think, you know, when when we were kids, the process of of go like if you didn't own like how would you in the past right how would you go and get this you'd have to go to the music library which would have to be open you have to get the score you'd have to like listen to it with the cd there because they wouldn't let you check the cd out when you were an undergraduate or what right right the the point of entry was completely the other direction mm-hmm. right you had the you had the record yeah. in the library uh-huh. yeah that i made a trek to san francisco literally got the score drove back if i if i wanted to look at adam's scores you know they didn't have it in the providence public library so i had to get my mom to like steal it from the harvard music library I mean, it was insane and and um, but you know now it's like you can get the score to anything. Well, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like so legally, th- illegally, and I and and you can watch them play it on YouTube, or you can even on YouTube they'll have the score. Sc- who makes those things, by the way? Where you, you they'll like have the score stro- scrolling and oh, listen to the piece. Oh, I made one recently. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's fun. So I mean, people <laughs> did it to like my music. It's random. Um, and so that I think is a problem, mainly because. You know, for me, I never run out of things to listen to. And I always, I study scores every day. I try to listen to something I don't know very well, like César Franck. Or, you know, I mean, whatever, you get into these, You, it's good to it's good to surprise yourself. Um, I agree. And, you but know. For me, that's a very disturbing scenario. Yeah, it's super it's, disturbing. It's, you, were, you see what I'm saying, where yeah. the thread has been cut, you've gone the other direction, you've just created something. Which is great, yeah. Great, You're, which is just called being creative. Right. But you didn't enter into, you didn't plug in. Yeah. Where the it's, rest of us heard wonderful music, and that activated us. Right. And I think part of that, I mean, you know, the, the you've got to, I, I, I think, and this is something that I tell students, is that you've got to be obsessed with something. Absolutely. You've got to be obsessed. And sometimes I think that, you know, you can be obsessed with totally new sounds. Like, you can be, like, an extended technique queen and be like, I 
live for, you know, styrofoam behind the bridge, like bowing that and breathing, whatever. And that's great as long as as long as you love and are obsessed by it and that it consumes you to, you know, to, and, and it's good if you're obsessed by something that you do. And if you're obsessed by something that someone else has done 300 years ago or, or 20 years ago, or, you know, I mean, and and I, I suppose what makes me a little crazy is the idea that there's a finite number of hours in the day. So I won't listen to the Ligeti Etudes. Do you know what I mean? Or the finite number of hours in the day. So I won't continue listening obsessively to something else. Do you know what I mean? And I think, or I think it's more disturbing. I don't. I don't need to. I don't need to. Right. And I'd like to. I'd like to think that we can. That you know, we as. I, I mean, I don't. I don't teach in any way full time. I teach like maybe two weeks a year somewhere, three weeks. But that you can encourage that kind of that kind of curiosity by showing them how fun it is to be obsessed with something. Right. And that. And so. So for me, it's like I, you know, I, I will just make some, make a student just sit and listen to Herbert Howells with me, and I'm like, oh my god, this chord is coming, right. and, and, just, and show that show. The I do difference. the same thing. You're just going to sit here with the score and watch how I react. <laughs> yeah, no, literally. And it's like, and, and you know, that's how I got into music that I thought I didn't like. Um, you know, because you're an idiot when you're 18, right? And I was like, I don't like Sibelius. You know, I didn't know, I had no idea what I was talking about. And then, and then you know, so the Seventh Symphony kicks you in the nuts. I mean, there's nothing like the Seventh Symphony. It's so outrageous. In the last two minutes where those trombones come in, and what key is that? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then that the cadence. It's and like, it's in one movement? Yeah. I mean, it's in one movement. I remember I saw that in San Francisco, actually. It was Especa conducting. And, like, the minute that last C happened, the whole of, you know, how they sit, sit behind the, the thing, right. they all held up a Finnish flag like, that they had made. For, <laughs> there was a bunch of Finns in town randomly. It was, so, I, I, like, wept. It was so moving. That's incredible. Um, you know, yeah. I think part of the problem is, um, I was thinking this the other day, this is kind of the first time in history where one can completely educate, quote, unquote, themselves from... This thing I've got right here, this laptop. The computer, yeah. Yeah, so you can show up to a composition lesson with music, and you've never had an acoustic experience. That's true, yeah. And so that's when it all started to unravel for me with, right. the, with the kids, and I thought, because a lot of the music that was coming to me was so surfacy. I thought, right. what is this? Why is this? They're going to concerts. And then I started to see what was happening. Right. Like they were just bouncing around from YouTube. and It's, you know, I I, I don't want to sound like Grandpa, because I, I feel like there, there there's something there's something to be... There's always something to be said for for people working in ways that we don't understand because we're old, and I, you know honestly, I I've been really impressed with a lot of student work that I think is coming from a sort of synthesized place of obsession and kind of surface technology. And it, but you know, it's I th- I think technology, literally just Sibelius or God help me, Finale, ha- has made things so easy that it's so easy to write really well orchestrated surfacey music. But you know, maybe that's not a bad thing. I mean, those are good. Those are good skills to have. And I think you know, for instance, absolutely, I, if you're aware, yeah, right, of what you're doing, if yeah. that's your whole show. But it's like I, I love that that film scores are really well orchestrated when they're when they're really well orchestrated. You know, you're yeah. like, thank you, like they, this yeah. this is great. You know, and it takes me back to like the genre and and you yeah. know, like like um, Lawrence of Arabia or or um, the Hitchcock films, obviously with with Bernard Herrmann. Anyway, it's in a well placed symbolism. Yeah, exactly. But I think I'd like to maybe play devil's advocate and say, yes, it's true. The children need to like read a book and know something, but they might in five years have figured out some other way to harness the technology that they'll be teaching us. I um, totally agree. So I, I, and I hope that's true. And I think, I think also people can come to technology in different ways and 
pick up an obsession there that'll send them back. And I think I think as long as you're obsessed with something, it's going to be fine. That's that's the thing that makes me sad. I like is, that optimistic. Well, yeah, that, that's the thing. That I, I had I had a batch of students, and it was like the ones who clearly got into you know Vayburn the way that like a dog gets into the trash they were just up in it like eating everything like general so's chicken you know, it wasn't like oh i'm gonna investigate this politely it was like full mayhem those were the ones who were running music even it didn't sound like that those they, they were the ones who were running music that was that was really smart and and reflected and even if it was like one thing that they did it was the result of a, a, a f- immersive experience right. well this obsession leads to discovering intent yeah. right yeah this is clear intent exactly and i think obsession works you know it's it works in a lot of different ways it works in a macro way but it works in a micro way too where it's like where it's the difference between a prelude and an etude right where it's like you you sort of need to know how to do both right where it's like and, and if you think about stravinsky Clearly, he's operating on both always simultaneously, right? Because there's technical things going. Like Petrushka is a great example, right? Like the way, just the technical way, from note to note that that piano part works, is an obsession. And the way that, the way that he announces that he's going to do these like polyrhythmic pieces of information in the percussion section. I mean, which is you know the more Moorish information. You're like. I actually didn't understand that until I was like 27. Like, what was going on? <laughs> do you know what I mean? And or the way that he's going to divide time up in the Red of Spring. It's like those are obsessions, and and it sounds like it, and that's why it sounds so ecstatic. Like when that Guiro comes in, and like it's like four over three. You want to kill yourself. It's so great, right? It's and it's it's clear that he's not doing that because he's like, oh, this will sound rad. It's like I am, I am in this like i'm like gnawing on this on this material right all the contributing creative components mm. firing at once yeah exactly right? i guess that's what i'm saying mm-hmm. in the end is but how do you when when you teach how do you encourage obsession like how do you how do you get them back back to the back to basics well i, I teach all through the repertoire so then i just feel like i'm kind of this psychic so when someone comes to me with a problem or i see them missing yeah. what's missing then you go yeah. home with the Barrick Sonata, or you. I just plug you into where you need Thank to you. be. That's what I do too, and it's and it, then it's ignited. What's awesome, also about younger students, and I wish. I mean, I wish. Well, what's awesome about younger students is that their problems are so diagnosable. Oh right, you know what I mean, and it's it's actually the same thing with with younger musicians too. It's like if you coach chamber music, it's like here are the five things that you're awesome at that I can tell in the first like five pages of this Mozart trio, and here are the things that I can tell you already. You just need to go home and and get better at. Right, do you know what I mean? Where yes. it's like when you switch position, lift your finger or be in control, <laughs> and it, it's actually with younger singers too. It's like. The thing I'm screaming, learn to control vibrato as well as you control dynamics. Just, you know what I mean? And it's like, just do it. Just do it. Yeah. Just and, do it. And with composers, exactly right. You can always diagnose. I mean, but sometimes when you diagnose, like the ligety, ligety friend, I was like, are you on crack? Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, and sometimes you, you want to you give them the wrong pill so they can see, they can see how, how off they are. You right. know what I mean? Where it's like you give them some... It's like make make the Boulez kids listen to like Parrot, and make the. And well, I do that too. Anything yeah. you tell me you don't like, yeah, you you're going do, yeah. home with. And make the like Ashley Fury kids listen listen to like Moon Dog, because that when you're young, that's that's really that's when that's the time that you that's that is the time when you have the time to do that kind of stuff. And I wish I had been, I, Christopher Rouse, who I studied with when I was an undergrad, he was like, 
really severe about about rep, but his rep was like SVU rep, like it was some weird like special need. Like he he made me listen to the Nielsen symphonies, like the one not not the one like the in, indefatigable or whatever the, whatever that <laughs> thing is with the two symphonies. Like I knew that one, yeah. you know. But it was like like Nielsen four <laughs> and like Ruggles. Oh, Ruggles Sun Treader and um sessions no. Uh, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and there was uh, there was something else like Havana's. I mean, it was like the most not obscure, but these random things in, in like Marcel Poot. Like, <laughs> like, and you know, he has this encyclopedic memory, so I'd be, find myself at the music library being like, "Excuse me, <laughs> do you have it? Like, no, it was, it's been stolen." Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like gray poupon. Like, it was like totally. so he could zero in. Yeah, and he was like, "You need to listen to, you know, turn, you know that like." You know, I so obviously we all know Carmina Burana, and I know all the or Schulwerk because I, you know, did did it in school. But there's like a million of these other cantatas. Oh yes, there are. And it's like Catulli Carmina, Triumphant Aphrodite, like it's all this stuff. And he'd be like, "You're gonna go home and listen to, you know, and these busted up recordings." And yeah, but it's I wonder, it's you get into danger if you if you if you get make a listening list that's too prescriptive. Like they need to have accidents too. Right. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I don't always fully tell them why this is happening. Right. You know, I don't say you don't know how to do this. Right. Take this. Right. So it's less. Right. Doctor Doctor B. <laughs> and let's see. You know, because you need to see what they can what they right. can do on their own. Have you found I, uh, that the composers who are really good at an instrument are at an advantage or a disadvantage? Lately, it's been advantage. Right. Yeah. Younger, uh, older generations. Excuse me. Like my generation, it was, I mean, it was looked down upon, right? That you would do two things or or more. Yeah. So now I'm encouraging the students, like, you need to get that trombone Out. up, to, yeah. you know, up to, up to par, and and you know, score a film, and the string quartet needs to be. <laughs> yeah. So I think the new generation does need to totally score a film. My God, that that's when you that's when you actually figure out your chops, because if you you know, some something. <laughs> I wish more people talked about it. It's like, if you don't need to write to make money, like if for whatever reason you have money or have a separate source of income or whatever, you if you never have to do the really scary thing of doing something very, very quickly for money, like a film score, which I say is very quick because it's, it's like in and out in two months, or like I just scored like a TV show for the BBC where, I mean, it was like no time. You just, I mean, you, you have to write an amount of music, just of minutes of music per day that's like insane. Almost overnight. <clears throat> and you learn where your faults and weaknesses are like really, really quickly. It's again, it's the shaving mirror. You see every every busted up thing. And you also learn what you have in your kitchen already, right? Because you, it's like quick fire. So you're like, you're like, oh, sh- I know I have like you know garam masala, and I know I have this, and, and I, <laughs> oh, I forgot that I had that crazy whisk. And you, you know, you kind of you take stock of what you have within grabbing distance, and then you learn for next time what, you know, what's next. Like what 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 do I actually have to you know do I have to buy a Vitamix or like a waffle iron? You know, it's like, <laughs> turns out you do. <laughs> yes, you do <laughs> exactly. Even if you're off carbs. And, you know? it's like, <laughs> And this informs, you can also take this back to, to the quote-unquote classical works, mm. correct? Of course, yeah, yeah. And well, also just learning how to, let me, th- let me phrase this correctly, learning how to do something with music, as in this piece of music needs to do something on the screen that the thing on the screen itself cannot do, right? The piece of music has to, has to 
finish this problem or solve the problem of, you know, an actor talking to another actor about a thing that's just not, it's falling flat. So the music has to, in some, has to create this kind of atmosphere in which that conversation will actually land. Learning to do that means that when you're identifying problems in, in raw music and concert music that doesn't have a program that doesn't have a narrative, you, you figure it out really quickly. You're like, what's wrong with this transition? Oh, right. It's th- this material is not being deployed correctly. Like I, I've, I've learned so much. But those parameters must be established and equally right in the concert music. Yeah, because I mean, you have it on a film. Well, I think it, but but with concert music, of course, you can you can indulge. I see. You can sort of you know, and it kind of in a in a weird way with concert music, in a, in a great way with concert music, it doesn't quote unquote matter. Like you can you can, if there's something you have to do, you can do it. You can take as long as you want to do it. So if you want to get from dark to bright, you can you know you can write the beginning of Harmonium, where if you're scoring a film or something, you know you have one minute and three seconds and 21 frames in order, you know what I mean? You, you, you figure out again how to deploy what you've got super, super fast. <laughs> I just say that because I, I did a premiere this um, past week, a nameless one. And I, so I thought I was playing viola. So I thought I'll just walk Solo around. The, or- and I was in the orchestra. So that I'll just walk around and interview the orchestra, see what my colleagues think. And everyone said the same thing. Oh, we couldn't tell where it was going. Mm. So that, that's interesting. And then when the composer got up, it was very clear from the, you know, her introduction of the work where it was going. Right. So I thought that's interesting that it didn't translate. And well, it's hard to see, it's hard to see from inside the box sometimes. Right. And then where do these people, you know, where yeah. they, where, where do they want to go? Oh, right. Where would you like to go? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And is this just about your, you know? <laughs> it is. I mean, that's that's the thing I struggle with too. Is like, is <clears throat> is is the journey clear and does it need to be? And you know, sometimes sometimes I like when it's not. Like Boulez is an example where I'm like, I don't know where this is going, even though I know this piece really well. You know, it's I, I like that it's kind of tilt-a-whirl structure. But then other times it's like, you know, other times you crave I'm trying to think of what it, what a piece with Harmony Lara. You know, you're like this, I know the structure. It's like does this thing and then it melts into this tune and then it comes back up and then we turn back on the motor and then it thing. You know, it's like and that that's satisfying in its own way too. So you just have to figure out what do, right does it exactly exactly as i said like what is the journey and do we care and figuring it out i think that's what i was reacting to was that the composer introduced something completely different almost or something that would lead right. you to believe like oh my god something cataclysmic is going to happen right and then just kind of floated through oops um, i mean composers are the worst talking about their own music. yeah like, that's so that's another thing i tell the kids that actually this is the thing that, that i've seen the best improvement in which is i say okay you're in high school right Pretend that your best friend from childhood who doesn't go to performing arts high school, right? You're not at like Walnut Hill or whatever. Pretend that that individual is sitting across the table and, you know, he or she is studying, is going to go to school for like engineering, knows a little bit about music, you know, parents have classical CDs in the home, maybe. Describe to your friend what your piece does. Sell the piece. Yeah. And don't, don't say like hexachord. Do you know what I mean? Uh, they say hexachord. And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't say it. Yeah. Don't say hexachord. Don't say, you know, just literally describe what's going on. It's a pitch. Yeah. Three but, sentences. And, and not even, it's three sentences, but, but more, more, it's just an observation of like, it starts like this and it ends like that, you know, or it, it's, how does Steve Reich describe four organs? It's short chord becomes long. 
the world's biggest, you know, cadence, whatever it is. And, and then it turns out every great piece we love can be sold with this kind of... Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Even even ones where the structure is really hard to, you know, it's like, yeah, exactly, sell it. And, and that's, in a, in a lot of ways, that's how I, like, oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> I had to coach the Hindemith, like, wind quintet or something oh yeah okay and i was like i i got nothing like i can't i, <laughs> I, got I, 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 I can't bear this piece. and the horn player or the bassoon player one one probably the bassoon player was like no no, no you're wrong he's like 15 years old he's like you're wrong this is why i love this piece this is why this happens and i was like thank you thank you very very much like i will now always remember this moment when i hear this piece god forbid you know <laughs> like, <laughs> which will never be yeah, exactly. i mean the viola sonata is dianu but it's like, you know, it's like it's like it should have been enough you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> this is why you're wrong. Yeah. No, it was amazing. I was yeah. like, all right. Well, good for him. For yeah. And we should all be able to do that for any piece of music, I think. that we Oh, absolutely. Even ones we dislike. So I made them especially. do it. Especially. Especially ones that, yeah. And I made them do it for each other's music, which was really funny. Um, oh, that's interesting. Like, at, in a masterclass, be like, okay, now remember your friend that we talked about. Like, explain this. You, imagine that you leave the masterclass and, and your friend's like, hey, what'd you listen to today? And you're like, oh, okay, well, this girl with this piece, it was for string quartet. It kind of started shimmery and then it got really intense and she used all these extended tank, you know, whatever. Like, you can. Don't say it was just cool. Yeah. But also don't say, like, her harmonic structure was based on three big pathicalias. You know, it's like, because like, 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 you, you always get that, you know. Because oh, the kids are, now, I mean, now everyone's on the spectrum anyway. <laughs> they all just want to nerd out at you so hard. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Nico, thank you so much. The pleasure is always mine. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.